Welcome to Kelly Dry's Ad Law Access Podcast. I'm Elisa Hutnick, and I am joined here by my partner, Aaron Burstein. And today, post-Thanksgiving, we are going to be talking about a topic that is causing a lot of a lot of heartburn, mostly because it just really needs to be demystified. And that is the California CPRA, uh, otherwise known as CCPA 2.0. Uh, and while we're going to have a number of podcasts coming up that really drill down on particular issues. Today, we wanted to focus on some overarching ones, as well as maybe a few particular topics that that caught our attention. So Aaron, perhaps you could start off with giving us the core question on when is CPRA effective and what do companies need to be doing today in terms of effective dates? Are there any things that kick off immediately? That is a great question and a great place to start. The answer is really not all that simple, but we'll try to break it down so uh, it's as clear as possible. And I think it's helpful to keep in mind two terms that govern the start dates of the CPRAs provisions or its amendments of the CCPA. And that is the effective date and the operative date. Under California law, um, ballot initiatives generally become effective and operative at the same time. And the effective date is tied to when the California Secretary of State uh, publishes a statement of the vote, uh, which is essentially a tally of all of the uh, races and ballot measures that were on the ballot uh, that year. And specifically, that effective date is, uh, I believe, five days after the statement of the vote is published. In the case of this... Aaron, just to yes. kind of, by way of analogy, so that's kind of on the federal level, we think of federal register publications, right? And X amount of days springing from that. So for California, this is the, uh, the tally of the vote by the Secretary of State posting. That's that trigger date where things come after. Exactly, exactly. So yes, uh, to, to go with that Federal Register analogy, yeah, it would exactly be the publication date of a notice in the Federal Register. You might see a draft notice before that and have extra time to review it. And that's essentially uh, where we are and have been with the CPRA because the text has been out there um, before the election and also um, in, in the time uh, over the past several weeks after the election was complete, but the statement of the vote is not, uh, is not yet published. So it's not yet published, but putting it in practical terms, we're on the eve of December it's likely to happen sometime over the course of December. So that way, as we're going to get into it, the some of these key exemptions will continue starting on January 1. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So going with that trigger date of the statement publication, whenever that is, five days after that, the CPRA will become effective. And what that means generally is that then it, it becomes the law of California, even though many of its provisions are not yet operative, meaning they're not the legal requirements that apply to businesses at that point. However, 
as you alluded to, there are a few important exceptions to that general statement that I just made. And specifically for the CCPA exemptions that currently apply to employee information and for business to business exchanges of information, those exemptions will be extended and they will be extended as of the date that the CPRA becomes effective. So that is, you know, five days after this statement appears from the California Secretary of State. What all of that boils down to is that, is that we fully expect those extensions to be in place and something that businesses can rely on as of January 1st, 2021, which is when those two exemptions that I mentioned would otherwise have expired. That So that's a really good point because that's something, and we'll talk about it, I think, now in terms of those exemptions, they're not whole carve-out exemptions because I think we saw some confusion. There was a little bit of panic questions we got that they had heard, clients had heard um, the buzz that, wait a second, does that mean some parts of CCPA for employee privacy do in fact kick in immediately? And there was some panic whether there was some CPRA related aspects that might start this upcoming Jan 1. And that that is not the case. Can you talk me through what actually substantively would apply for employee notice? Sure. So the way that I'm reading those provisions of the CPRA is that the existing requirements for employee notices will continue to apply. The reason for that is that in in the new employee exemption um, section that the CPRA creates, there is a reference to um, an earlier part of the CPRA in section 1798.100. And that reference is assuming that we're sort of in the fully operative CPRA world where there will be additional requirements for disclosures, both to employees and, and consumers generally. However, that change in subsection 100 is not operative until uh, the first of the year of 2023. So we think in the meantime, between the first of January, 2021, and for the next two years, the best reading of the law is to take the, the continuing existence of the employee exemption and use the requirements for notice that are currently in force. Uh, So basically, whatever you've been doing to use the employee exemption, um, you can continue to do until 2023 when the rest of the CPRA becomes operative. So it it was was almost like the mini privacy notice. You didn't have to do the full CCPA notice that you would do to consumers, for example, on your website, but for those employees and job applicants, you would do the notice of the categories and types of information that you collect and the reasons for using it, but there's no sale rights. There's no opt out of sale or full access deletion type requests um, that would be applicable. 
So, so just put, putting that in, in brass tacks uh, in terms of what, what businesses should think about making sure they have in place now versus what they need to prepare for, for 2023. Right, right. So can I just, I'm going to push a little bit. So now switching over to the B2B, that one's not as exciting, but I think maybe it would be helpful to just restate what is, what applies starting Jan 1 or what continues, we should say. Yeah. Essentially, the substance of the B2B exemption is not changing. Really, what we have is a two-year extension of that exemption. Um, so, whereas under without the CPRA and without any additional legislation, the B2B exemption would have expired on January 1st, 2021. Um, that will be extended for two years uh, until January 1st, 2023. And our, our side commentary on the B2B exemption is, it is interestingly drafted. It's not a whole carve out. You, you've got to have a reasonable basis to, to actually make sure it fits. And it is one of those areas where we don't have corresponding regulations. So we don't really have any AG published guidance. And so good faith and good judgment go, go a long way here. So speaking of good faith and good judgment, I think that that might come into play as businesses start to really dig into the CPRA, which on its own and in terms of figuring out what it does to amend the CCPA is kind of a complicated exercise. And it would take longer than we have today, I think, to go through everything that's a significant change in the law. But maybe we could start off just by talking about some of the issues that stick out in, in your mind and my mind as the top issues or most important um, changes that the CPRA will bring about. And do you wanna maybe start us off with, with an issue or two that's at the top of your mind? Sure. So I think about it, maybe because we all have PTSD a bit from CCPA on what things would you prefer you have time to prepare for as opposed to having to quickly work and, and turn the ship around in a very quick period of time? And so one of those uh, are contract terms. We know that there was a you know frenzied rush to get updated contract terms for CCPA with one service providers to make sure that they could reasonably retain that classification of service providers. And some contracts, right, there's a timing in terms of when they are up for amendment. And I think here with CPRA, there's a couple new requirements that are going to mean yet again, a refresh to contracts. And so one, it's making sure that those agreements that you have with your contract with your service providers, do any of those actually need to be switched to this new term of a contractor, which is something different than the service provider and making sure that that is appropriately calibrated to how C CPRA is addressing that and thinking of timing, right? When is the right when is the right time? Maybe you want to have a springing provision, right? In terms of what during the period in which CCPA is in effect and then what happens thereafter. And so that I think the practical effort is thinking through 
which of your partners or service providers, which of your sub part of those would probably be called contractors, and then which of those really are in this new sale or share category, which I know you're going to go into in a bit. Um, the other new contract term that I think got added is really about sale. So those with whom you are selling or sharing, CPRA requires you also have some specific contract terms. And so even for that category to make sure who do you have agreements with? And in the tech sector, a lot of those agreements are really the publicly posted site terms. And so thinking about uh, what is that period of time in which those are going to be updated and we have to, we as a, a business might have to respond to that. And so I would just really think about calendaring that out and prioritizing who are the ones that you actually have control over the contract and what is that timetable look like for making the updates versus the third parties that are likely to push those terms down to you. So that that was kind of one of mine. And I, I know that we're going to be pretty active on that front. Aaron, what were what were some things that stuck out for you? Well, be, before I get into the, the top items in my mind, let me just ask you to go back for a moment to the um, issue of service providers versus contractors. This new term or category of contractor is a creature of the CPRA. And when companies are, are facing the question of, do we call this partner a service provider or a contractor? What are the key differences or difference between those two categories that they should be looking for? Well, if you recall with, with CCPA, we were splitting our hairs because that definition of third party was that negative definition, right? You are you are a third party if you're not the business and you're not this what we would some of us thought was the service provider, but it was this other potential category that I think was a little tricky to understand. So here with CPRA, there's that arguably clear distinction on what is the entity that is really working on your behalf, right? The analogous processor to the controller for GDPR, but one who is really doing something for you as an ex stepping into your shoes as the business. Whereas a contractor are, where is there a specific agreement? And they're both agreements, but a specific agreement outlining the actual usage for the data and the purpose for which it will be used. And the, the contractor definition is further defined, but I think that's really kind of looking through where might that entity really have some of its own benefit there because it's pursuant to the business purpose that does not fall into the share sale category, which we'll get into. And that would mean that that's an, a third party. So it's, it's this almost shade of gray in between that is defined. Uh, and, and that'll be interesting because a lot of parties in CCPA land really wanted to not be in the third party definition and so kind of push themselves as a service provider definition where many of those probably uh, could fall into this contractor um, lane. Great, that's, that's a very handy explanation. Let's continue um, to talk about some of the top issues uh, or top changes in the CPRA. And I think you've teed up sharing as one of those uh, rather well. So I'll, I'll take that on and just explain a little bit about what the CPRA says about sharing. And again, there's some history here. I think the CCPA, as, as many of our listeners know, introduced and defined the term sell 
to mean exchanges of personal information for monetary or other valuable consideration. And a question that came up frequently as companies were trying to determine whether they were selling personal information to a specific other party or partner was whether uh, some sort of, of valuable consideration was involved. Sharing does two things. One is that it removes that requirement or element of valuable consideration. So whether or not there's anything, money or um, any sort of exchange of value going along with the exchange of personal information that is potentially sharing. The second thing that is important to know about the definition of sharing is that it's purpose specific. And in particular, it is for the purpose of cross-contextual behavioral advertising or interest-based advertising. So I think that's consistent with a lot of the motivation behind the CCPA originally, which is really to focus on interest-based advertising and uh, limitations and consumer um, choices around that particular form of advertising. The definition of sharing, I think, takes that purpose a bit further and reflects an intent to really um, impose specific regulation around interest-based advertising, sort of eliminating this debate about whether valuable consideration is involved in, uh, in interest-based advertising related activities. So that is gonna, I mean, that was such a big part of the, the CCPA compliance timing. It was really brain crunching what, what that was um, and how that played out. And so I think now having at least more clarity around those concepts, it's still gonna be pretty time intensive, but I think it does, does help at least demystify some of that. Uh, in my household over Thanksgiving break, we are reading, uh, going back to the 80s with Ready Player One and Ready Player Two. And so I'm gonna raise the concept of the, what is the opposite of the Easter, Easter egg hidden in various parts of the CPRA? So like the negative ones, and maybe that will be what I tee up in terms of, Aaron, what were some opposite Easter eggs that we found in CPRA? I had a few that I had on my notes, but I'm curious, um, what are some ones that you spotted that are gonna cause some consternation? Well, uh, I, I think one that is hard to miss is the creation of this new agency in California uh, that will be a five-member commission, sort of similar in, in some ways to the Federal Trade Commission at, at the federal level, but really specialized and dedicated to privacy regulation and enforcement. I think we could probably spend a half hour or more talking about um, this new agency, which is called the California Privacy Protection Agency or CPPA. The acronyms are going to get confusing. Um, so we, we might have to call it the agency or something like that. But um, I, I think just to highlight some of what struck me about this, this agency's structure is that it will have quite extensive rulemaking authority. 
Um, I think there are 21 or more, more than 20 specific rulemaking activities that the CPRA authorizes this new agency to engage in. Another is that um, it, you know, it will depend on appointments, but there are some pretty specific requirements in place for background in dealing with privacy issues and for expertise uh, for the five members who are named to the commission. And then I think another aspect of it, and maybe this gets more into Easter egg rather than non-Easter egg category, but it's it's going to be a an agency that looks and feels in some ways like a European data protection authority. Uh, and one example of, of how that might work is that it will have these auditing functions or auditing authorities and the ability to really sort of demand information from businesses about their CPRA compliance. Uh, that's a change at, that is significant um, both with respect to how companies interact with regulators, as well as what I think underlying work needs to go into being ready for those types of questions. And um, I think there's this implied emphasis throughout the CPRA. It's explicit in some ways, but it's also implied on having documentation ready, having processes that allow you to demonstrate how you're complying with things and how you're resolving questions that might not, not have clear answers and where you really need to make reasonable judgments. Um, you know, we see in other areas of privacy law that documentation can be really helpful in that regard. And I think that will be um, uh, raised to another level with the, the CPPA, the, the new agency in California. Right. No, I think that's an excellent point. And it's almost just as we're going to be hearing about nominations in the federal presidential transition. I think in with you Q1, Q2, we're going to start hearing names thrown around for the California's privacy agency in terms of who's going to head that up. So I think something to at least keep our ears out for for updates on that front. Um, Aaron, I'm curious. One of the things that we have heard which I think is, is an un, unsupported rumor based on the text of CPRA, is that given this new privacy agency, does the AG become irrelevant or soon become irrelevant when it comes to enforcing CPRA? Why is that not the case? Well, that, it's not the case because the shift from the AG to the, the CPPA is not immediate and the uh, the AG will retain enforcement authority. So, um, you know, to the extent that there is room for the AG's office and the agency to sort of figure out maybe who is best situated for enforcement in given instances, um, that's something that uh, uh, they could decide um, in, in specific actions, um, you know, how to proceed. It may be that the expert... Um, Litigators are in the AG's office, whereas the subject matter experts are in the agency. So it could work out that way. Yeah, I know that one will be just interesting to see if it is as orderly as, as that might suggest or whether there's a bit of a battle on who who wants to enforce in a particular area because they do both retain dual authority. I think the at least the one benefit is you can't get fined both by the AG and the 
agency for the same violation. That at least there's some clarity on. Yeah, um, but I, I, to your point, I think we've seen in other settings that two is a crowd when it comes to agencies with some overlapping authority. So um, I agree, it will it will uh, warrant close observation and um, probably take some time to better understand exactly how the relationship between those those agencies is going to work. So were were there other parts of the CPRA that struck you or other parts of the agency creation in particular that our listeners should be thinking about right now? Well, to my opposite of Easter egg thing, I had a few just maybe quick hits of things to think about. One was there's an express portability and interoperability requirement. So that way when somebody makes an access request, the format of the data should be both portable. And, and that, that was essentially implied. Many companies are providing this in PDFs or Excel, the, the, the information being requested in the right to knows. Uh, but the interoperability, that's one that I think is just going to be <laughs> TBD on, on what that looks like. And if you think about historically the efforts that have led to interoperability and how complex that is, you know, where it was number portability on phones, and that's just with a phone number, with regulations really designed to enable that, uh, or HIPAA, which took for the health um, covered information by healthcare providers and insurance agencies, uh, that took a whole series of regulations, and it's still not perfect. Uh, now companies are going to have to have data in a way that's interoperable. And so you wonder whether these are going to be text files and, and just all the trade secret special sauce. And yes, you don't have to give up trade secret information, but it does, it's going to require some investment to think about how data is going to be provided and still meet that requirement. And that's one where I'm looking for future regulations and, and guidance um, that I think are going to be really critical on that. A couple of the other points that kind of jump out at me is that right now when you have a deletion request as a business, there was some confusion on how do you communicate that to your service providers? And so the CPRA was really clear. You just have to notify them uh, and they've got the obligation to delete. Right now in the marketplace, you've got some of those service providers who are saying, no, no, you have to direct the consumer directly to me. So I think question on whether that will still stand the other notification that I think is really interesting is you have to notify third parties to whom you sold or shared information about a deletion request. And the only savings on that is whether the effort proves impossible, it's a tall order, or disproportionate effort. And so that's one where I, I do wonder what the self-regulatory groups are going to do that might make that reliance on a disproportionate effort applicable or not, um, right? If there is a, a do not sell or do not share uh, tag that, that's attached to help on that. And then finally, the other thing that jumped out at me was sensitive personal information has a lot of requirements associated with it in the CPRA, including its own link. And so that at first glance sounds like a tall order and a lot of obligations, but it's actually a really narrow definition because it's only the type of sensitive personal information if it's used to create inferences about a person. And so that is something to keep in mind. I think a lot of best practices are not, not using sensitive personal information to create inferences, but um, in this day and age where there's just such smart data and creates uh, so many insights to really think about whether your company is doing something that might trigger that line. 
What about you, Aaron? What were some of the things that jumped out at you? I, I, I agree about the sensitive personal information um, definition. I, I, I do think that some elements of that, like precise geolocation, you know, those are used fairly widely in, in creating inferences at some point. So I think that um, we'll, we will need to be careful and, and really diligent in figuring out how we use those types of information to, you know, really understand whether the way that the categories defined in the CPRA um, is limited in a way that, that uh, might help uh, with, with compliance. Um, I, I think that maybe one other thing that I would point out as, as being a headline item in this CPRA has to do with opt-outs and particularly the, the grant of rulemaking authority to the new California Privacy Protection Agency to define technical specifications for opt-out mechanisms. This, of course, I, I think continues the long-running debate about around things like a do not track signal and other efforts to make it uh, easy and intuitive for consumers to opt out of certain types of information use or, or certain types of advertising. This will put those types of questions in the hands of a powerful new regulator. The, the grant of rulemaking authority has several different elements to it and, and limitations, um, in, including one that I think is important, which is that whatever requirements the C CPPA defines, um, the signal has to clearly represent a consumer's intent and be free of defaults constraining or presupposing such intent. So that, um, along with some of the other factors that are in this, this grant of rulemaking authority will be really important in terms of shaping what the mechanism looks like, how prevalent the consumer's choice is to exercise uh, opt-out through a, a technical mechanism or signal, and what impact that will have on the whole chain of market participants from publishers to providers of advertising services to, to advertisers themselves. So it's, it's hard to game that out, but I think that um, this, this is a major feature of the CPRA and, and again, something that will require uh, close attention as uh, that rulemaking gets underway um, when, once the agency is up and running. I think you just previewed one of our future CPRA episodes where we can go fully into the, the weeds on that one. Um, well, I think we've concluded today's, we've covered a lot of stuff to process, but we certainly will come back with it with another CPRA episode. If you've got questions, we've got resources and answers. So on kellydry.com at the footer, there's a link to our advertising and privacy law resource center. And then on our blog, adlawaccess.com, we are covering a ton of these topics and you can actually sort by CCPA, which I think we now have to update for CPRA. And if you've got other questions or topics within CPRA that you want us to cover, feel free to shoot one of us a note. 
um, ahutnick at kellydry.com and Aaron's at aburstein at kellydry.com. So thank you so much and we will be back. <laughs>